Hey everybody, it's Alex Aldea, one of the creators of the first Mrs. Claus. It's been a while and I'd love to tell you about a new project I'm releasing today called The Heads of Sierra Blanca. As many of you know, I don't just make fiction Christmas musicals. I have a podcast network called The Paragon Collective and have worked on podcasts ranging from RuPaul What's the Tea to Case File to even Whitney Cummings' upcoming podcast. Heads of Sierra Blanca is a true crime podcast that I was so lucky to work on. It also features editing and foley work from Victor Figueroa, as well as scoring work from Andrew Jocelyn, who both worked on the first Mrs. Claus. When you finish listening, the second episode is already available on the Heads of Sierra Blanca podcast feed. So sit back and enjoy the Heads of Sierra Blanca. It is undoubtedly one of the most dangerous places on the entire planet. Whoever did this was not your typical killer. There's something much more impersonal behind this than anything I've ever seen in my career. Something colder. 37-year-old Lorena Salas found dead in her home. The killer believed to have drugged her, then set up an elaborate contraption around her home, which ended in her decapitation. This is The Heads of Sierra Blanca. Welcome to The Heads of Sierra Blanca. My name is Monica Rodriguez. And I'm Magdalena Salas, but you can call me Lena. I'm a former El Paso County police detective and a current private investigator with over 20 years experience in the field. I've known Monica for half my life. She's been a close friend of mine and my family's for as long as I can remember. When Lena's aunt, Lorena, first moved to Sierra Blanca, we were best friends. I might even go as far as saying we were inseparable. That being said, Monica and I came together to make this podcast because we both wanted to reinvestigate a case that changed our lives forever. The Rubdeck murders. For those of you that don't know, the Rube in Rubdeck stands for Rube Goldberg machine. A Rube Goldberg machine is a device that performs a simple task in a complicated way. Like a ball rolls and hits into some dominoes which then knocks over a vase. And usually, at the end of this sequence, it performs an important task, such as turning the page in a newspaper. The killer would construct a similar device, except his climactic ending involved the decapitation of his victims. That's the deck. To understand the crimes, it is important to have some general knowledge of the history of the region. Before I moved two hours north to Sierra Blanca, I grew up fearing for my life. This wasn't just because a killer could show up at my doorstep at any time, but because if they did, no one would even care. That was just life in Ciudad Juarez. It is undoubtedly one of the most dangerous places on the entire planet, plagued by drug warfare and the mysterious violent deaths of hundreds of women and girls since the early 90s. Ciudad Juarez sits just across the border from the US city of El Paso, Texas. Amongst the thousands killed overall, well over 300 women and young girls have died since 1993, with local groups believing the real numbers to be far, far higher. The cause, the drug trade, but also sex slavery, even satanic rituals. There have been many federal and state investigations, but still the authorities seem unable to identify most of the killers or even establish strong motives. These were independent women, mostly abducted on their way to work, like your mom. 
My mother was the sole provider of our family and labored away at the same maquiladores as so many of these victims. When I talk about this, I talk about economic violence. A lot of them work in uh, transnational corporations that are along the border. They're paid very low wages, and, and all of these jobs are predominantly held by women. They're making maybe $80 a week, and it also relates to, to the sex trade. It was also pretty clear who was behind most of this. This is what journalist Johan Hari had to say about it on the Joe Rogan experience. He's most well known for his book covering the war on drugs called Chasing the Scream. If you're a member of the Zetas at that time in Juarez, it's different now because another drug gang has displaced them, you own the state, right? Um, you have, if, if they control 70% of the economy, you have more money than the government. Right? So the police worked for them when I went to go interview Rosalio. He said, when I would go and murder people, the police would, would come with me. They would dispose of the body, right? Remember, Jesus Christ. And what year are we talking about? This is like six years ago. So my mom, my aunt, and I packed up and left. Fifteen years ago, we came across the border to build a new life in Sierra Blanca. I was 10 years old, and although it was only 80 miles from Juarez, it felt like a different planet. Life seemed peaceful in a way it never had before. Here, tumbleweeds outnumbered people a thousand to one, and there are only two restaurants in town. Hell, Sierra Blanca is so small, there isn't even a grocery store. For many years, Sierra Blanca's most infamous instance of crime was this. Well, you heard that red-headed stranger Willie Nelson was arrested Friday at a Sierra Blanca, Texas border checkpoint. He was charged with possessing six ounces of the deadly devil weed, marijuana. But that all changed in 2007. My aunt Lorena got a job waitressing at Delfinas, Sierra Blanca's only Mexican restaurant. She started making great money on tips and moved out of our spot to her very own house. For her, that was everything. And as a family, we were excited to celebrate it. On the night of March 26th, Tia was supposed to come over for dinner. Mom and I made homemade tortillas, chilaquiles, the works. After waiting an hour, we called her and it went straight to voicemail. At that point, it didn't seem all that strange. No alarm bells were ringing. We called again an hour later. Still nothing. We waited by the phone, but something didn't feel right. It wasn't like Dia to just blow off her own family. We just knew something had happened. So mom and I decided to stop by her house and make sure she was okay. But she wasn't. This just in Sierra Blanca, Texas, 37-year-old Lorena Salas found dead in her home in the late hours of the evening. The killer, believed to have drugged her, then set up an elaborate contraption around her home, which ended in her decapitation. The perpetrator also appears to have been live streaming the entire chain of events. The Hudspeth County Sheriff's Department examining the footage as we speak. We are working diligently on behalf of Hudspeth County and the Salas family to find justice for this heinous crime. We have no additional comment at this time. I couldn't believe it. The whole event was unconscionable. I remember watching my mother cry herself to sleep, night after night, as if there was something she could have done to stop it. I couldn't console her. She was completely numb incapable of letting this new reality sink in. 
Elena, how did you feel? I remember stopping at Delfina's every day on my walk home from school. It was 10 minutes out of the way, but I didn't care. As I'd approach the restaurant, I'd get a little jolt of hope that maybe, just maybe, she'd be there. That I'd look through the window and she'd be pouring coffee. That she was just working this whole time and that all of it was just some sort of messed up dream. But of course, that wasn't true. The police had virtually no incriminating evidence and no potential suspects. It was a media frenzy with the same handful of facts circulating endlessly, going nowhere. We had a chance to sit down with the sheriff to discuss it. Could you introduce yourself for the tape, please, Sheriff? Uh, yes, I'm Sheriff Arvin Gardner, G-A-R-D-N-E-R, from Hudspeth County. I uh, was born here in Sierra Blanca, and I've lived in this town almost my whole life. And how long have you been working for the force? Well, I graduated from the academy in uh, 1975, and then uh, worked in Hidalgo County as a deputy uh, for a little bit until returning in, in 1980. Then in 1990, I was elected Hudspeth County Sheriff. So in total, I've served this county damn near 40 years. So with your depth of experience, how do you normally investigate a case like this? And what were your first thoughts? Usually during a homicide investigation, you dive deep into the victim's life. You talk to their family, friends, co-workers, significant others, try to find leads from there. You know, nine times out of 10, when someone winds up dead, the perp was someone they knew. Uh, your aunt, though, she she kept to herself. Yeah. Uh, she got up early, went to work, spent time with family. She had no extra professional relationships with coworkers or customers, no significant others. We We couldn't find any reasonable motive for anyone who knew her. And what did you learn from the video? Well, that whoever did this was not your typical killer. There was something much more impersonal behind this than anything I'd ever seen in my career. Something colder. Unfortunately, to best understand the Rubdeck killer, I think it's important to play some snippets of the audio. The video starts off with an alarm. Lorena was tied down. Her mouth gagged. The chair was nailed into the ground, which prevented her from gaining any sort of traction. There was a plate balanced on her head with a string tied against it. Be careful. If you move too much, you'll die. (laughs) You've lived a useless existence, but in death, you will finally serve a purpose. No matter how many times I listen to that, I still don't understand what that means. Me neither. Though, we'll get back to that later. Lorena then stood still for 45 minutes. Even though she was gagged, you could see her running through the full gamut of thoughts and emotions. At first, she began to cry frantically. Then her eyes grew bloodshot, darting around the room looking for any opportunity to save her life. After exhausting every thought, it seemed as if she deflated into a sense of deathly calmness. It was almost like she came to the realization she couldn't fight it forever. That she didn't have control. 
until finally, Lorena let her head drop. Her head rolled across the floor to the front door. That was the very scene my mother walked in on. This is what Sheriff Gardner had to say about it. It's, uh, it's disturbing that this tape is still online. Um, we always expend every effort to take these videos down, but sometimes that's yeah, it's just not enough. Well, is there anything you can do about it? Well, it's... Uh, it's a somewhat quick process working with Facebook now. If we see something, we can usually get it pulled almost instantly. But there are websites that are filled to the brim with homicide videos, and there's just very little we can do about it. For legal purposes, we're going to refer to the website where the Rubedeck hosted his homicide videos as stream leaks. What did the tape tell you about this murderer? A lot. It became clear when looking at the video that this was a disturbed individual with professional engineering skills, someone with a higher set of ideals, someone who knew exactly what they were doing and had probably killed before. Well, we definitely know that they killed after. Yeah, well, that we do. Yesterday on June 6th, Carlos Anaceto was found dead in his barn decapitated. Sources report that the circumstances of the crime are similar to the murder of Lorena Salas. Police are on high alert. The only difference was that this time, the victim's mouth was no longer gagged. But the killer soundproofed the barn so no one could hear him. Yeah, Carlos's case was, was just like your aunt's, just incredibly strange. He was a single farmer, lived by himself, kept to himself, no one seemed to have any ill will toward him. Yet once the DEA got word of the Anacito homicide, they became intimately involved in the investigation. Sheriff Gardner, what evidence did you have that this was narcotics-related? Well, it didn't look personal. There was no explicit sexual element of the crime like most serial killers. You know, your classics like Dahmer and Bundy. Uh, there were no incidents of sexual violence, no attempt to dispose of the bodies, or even a desire for the killer to be present for the event. Uh, the emphasis was on the public perception of the act itself. But what does that have to do with drugs? Well, these cartels have a penchant for posting some of their most heinous killings online. This killer also clearly had the means to afford cameras and materials to build these elaborate devices and Presumably the manpower. I mean, the only murderers this violent, calculated, and resourceful were Sicarios from Mexican cartels. This fit the profile. Is that enough of a correlation? Well, if that isn't enough for you, consider the environment. At the time, Juarez was the key battleground in a turf war between the Zeta and the Sinaloa cartels. So the timing didn't seem inconsequential to that either. Hmm. In a certain sense, he wasn't wrong. Maitia never used drugs, never got involved with narcos, and was never one to risk her safety. Yeah, but you yourself mentioned what life was like in Juarez before you left. 
these drug wars always have collateral damage. It isn't too far-fetched to assume that the violence began spilling over into the states. To further my point, this is what a neighboring Texas sheriff had to say about it on CNN in 2011. Now, entire towns have fallen to the cartels, and they've unleashed a campaign of terror where hundreds of families have been chased out of places like El Porvenir, their homes set on fire, and a much more grisly end for cartel enemies, some of whom have been beheaded and dismembered and left in plain view. In the last two years, three chiefs of police have been murdered in the Juarez Valley. The sheriff says it'd be suicide if he crossed over the border. You have no law enforcement counterpart on that side. No, not anymore. The last one I had contact with, they cut his head off and put it in an ice chest. There hasn't anybody stepped up to the plate since then. So it seems the sheriff had a fairly logical assumption. Any doubt that it was the cartel soon vanished after the murder of Ana Nunez. Ana Nunez was an immigrant from Mexico, a total shut-in. She owned a small house and never talked to anybody. Just like everybody else. Unlike the rest of the victims, she was linked to drug trafficking. Rumor has it she was the ex-wife of Luis Palma, one of the former heads of the Zeta cartel. After he was sentenced to 10 years for drug trafficking, Ana supposedly moved to Sierra Blanca to start a new life for herself. Though, it didn't really pan out that way. As you know, we have a strict protocol with every fresh homicide investigation. Yeah? We lock off the crime scene, then we bring in a coroner and investigators. And with the, with the previous cases, we found no fingerprints, no DNA. Clearly, the bodies weren't moved from the scene. At Anna's house, we finally got something. There was blood on the side of the camera that did not belong to the victim, likely from an initial struggle upon abduction. Usually in these cases, they send the sample to a lab and create a DNA profile. Then they run a test across CODIS. CODIS stands for the Combined DNA Index System. It's a national bank maintained by the FBI, which holds over 9 million records. All 50 states currently require anyone with a felony to submit their DNA. So this is how Sheriff Gardner interpreted that. Unfortunately, the DNA had no match in our system. So that meant, one, that the killer never had a felony conviction. And secondly, that all we could do is wait for them to strike again. Which they did not. Well, thank God. But why do you think they stopped? Our DEA contacts told us that in August of 2007, the Zetas and the Sinaloa cartels came to a peace treaty. Juarez and southwestern Texas were to be forfeited over to the Sinaloas. I don't feel any sense of resolution or that my Dia's murderer was brought to justice. For all I know, the killer is still free and alive. Something in the pit of my stomach tells me this isn't the full story, that there's something more to all of this. Well, now is a better time than ever to investigate. If the Rubdeck murders were, in fact, cartel retaliations, it must have been ordered by the Sinaloas. In 2015, Omar El Carnicero Santiago, the head sicario of the Sinaloa cartel in southwestern Texas, was arrested. Carnicero means butcher in Spanish a nickname that seemed appropriate given his rap sheet. El Carnicero was found two hours north of El Paso, in the middle of the desert. He was attempting to dissolve the bodies of 10 victims in barrels full of caustic soda. In order to be spared the death penalty, El Carnicero confessed to 90 murders and handed over information to the DEA about his bosses. Strangely enough, the Rubdeck murders were never discussed in El Carnicero's plea agreement. 
This was something I had to ask Sheriff Gardner about. So how sure are you that El Carnicero is responsible for these killings? Look, this guy is a sick individual. I think he's definitely committed other murders he's never admitted to, including the Rubedex. But the call was made that it wasn't worth government resources to try to convict him on anything else. He was a cooperating witness in dozens of other investigations and never going to be a free man again anyway. Well, I think it's important for the healing process of my family and the families of all the Rubedex victims to definitively know what happened. I like to reach out to Elgarni Settle himself and interview him. <laughs> but look, you know, I get it. Believe me. It tears me up to see families like this, but, but the case is closed. Uh, it'd be a miracle to nail a killer on every murder they committed. Christ, they got Capone on tax evasion. The right man is in jail, and that in itself is worth celebrating. But Sheriff Gardner, isn't there just anything that you can do? There's ju- nothing more than I can do. I'm sorry. You want my advice? Don't waste your time. I'd focus on moving on. But of course, I didn't stop there. I wrote El Carnicero. I told him I'd like to interview him and get some clarity on Lorena's murder. Two weeks later, he actually wrote back. Dear Lena, I am so sorry to hear about your tia. I can tell you with all of my blood and the integrity I have left on this planet that it wasn't me. If it would help you, I'd be happy to speak to you about it. Before we get into what happened next, time for a quick word from our sponsors. On the heads of Sierra Blanca, we deal with some pretty heavy topics when facing serious issues like could not have done it alone. Oftentimes, getting professional help is ridiculously expensive, hard to schedule, especially if you have a full-time job or school, and isn't often covered by health insurance. Right now, working on this case is incredibly taxing, and I can't stress enough how amazing of a resource BetterHelp has been. BetterHelp will assist your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counselor network, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide, and you can log into your account anytime and send a message to your own counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, so it's easy, convenient, and there whenever you need it. It was so nice to text my therapist, Sarah, right away how I was feeling, when I was feeling it, instead of having to wait for the following week for a session. It is more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and there is even financial aid available, so there is no reason not to reach out. So right now, go to betterhelp.com Blanca and get 10% off your first month. That's a pretty great deal. So join the over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional on betterhelp.com slash Blanca. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash B-L-A-N-C-A for 10% off your first month. So a lot of mainstream deodorants are made with aluminum, which many believe can cause horrible health problems later in life. 
though making the switch to a natural deodorant does not mean having to sacrifice an odor and wetness protection. Though making the switch to a natural deodorant does not mean having to sacrifice on odor and wetness protection. I love Native. They are aluminum-free, safe, and effective. My favorite scents are their lavender and rose, cucumber and mint, and their pumpkin spice latte. Native comes in a wide variety of enticing scents for men and women, plus they release new, limited-edition seasonal scents throughout the year. They even offer an unscented formula and baking soda-free formula for those with sensitivities. Though it is not just me who is raving about Native, they have over 8,000 five-star reviews, and Native has been profiled on The Today Show, Elle Magazine, Pop Sugar, Refinery29, and more. There is no risk to try, and they even offer free returns and exchanges in the U.S. For 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use promo code BLANCA during checkout. That is promo code B-L-A-N-C-A at nativedeodorant.com for 20% off your first order. nativedeodorant.com, promo code BLANCA. And now we're back. After receiving the letter, we called Garnicero's warden and set up a time for the following week to meet him at the Allen Polanski unit, a supermax prison in Livingston, Texas. We packed our bags, loaded everything in my car, and drove 10 hours. Hello, ma'am. Can I see your paperwork? Here's the media release form with Warden Thomas's counter signature. Okay, follow me. In the movies, you always see some journalist talking to an inmate on a phone through thick glass windows. Well, this wasn't that. It never dawned on me that in real life, we'd be face to face with nothing to separate us. We waited for roughly 15 minutes before El Carnicero came out, but it felt so much longer. Hola, Magdalena. Hablo en inglés? Uh, yeah, that, that'd be best. Hopefully the drive over wasn't too painful. I was struck by how normal he was. Inviting, almost. Yeah, at first interaction, I would have never pegged him as a criminal mastermind or someone who killed three times as many people as Ted Bundy. But before we could even discuss the Rupdeck murders, he wanted to tell us about his life. I had dreams of playing soccer as a little boy, but that wasn't in my cards. Being an article, on the other hand, was. Omar started working for the cartel at age 13. Soon, he was fast-tracked to become a hitman. Initially, he was part of a group of teenage sicarios called Los Desechables, or the Disposables. His penchant for efficient hits without drawing too much attention made him rise through the cartel ranks. That, and one other thing. I had an American passport. I could work in both the U.S. and Mexico. Much like how elite special forces for the United States had rigorous training before going into war, so do the cartels. Except instead of practicing on harmless targets, they developed their killing abilities on live test subjects. To give some insight into how organized these cartel forces are, we interviewed Johan Hari, who you heard earlier in the clip from the Joe Rogan experience explaining how the setas were formed. In the uh, early part of the 21st century, 
when the war for drugs was raging in Mexico, the US government decided that they were going to train an elite anti-drugs force for the Mexican government. So they spend a fortune, I think it was $50 million. They take these people to Fort Bragg, they train them, they give them every weapon you can imagine. They, they, they build this elite force. And that force goes back to Mexico and six months later they defected and formed the Zetas. When you look at the Zeta violence, you can look at it as an American taxpayer and say, yeah, that's one of our achievements. We trained these people. So these cartels were no joke. No kidding. El Carnicero spoke of his past exploits like he was at a job interview. Measured, forthcoming, and thoughtful. As if there was a greater purpose behind all of it. From Trump, all we hear about is building a wall to keep people like me out. What if it was the other way around? What if, when I joined the Sinaloa cartel, there were discussions for a deal with the Mexican government that was bigger than fucking NAFTA? Let's take a beat to dissect this. Rumors of this sort are not new. El Chapo Guzman, the former boss of El Carnicero Sinaloa cartel, once claimed in court that he paid a $100 million bribe to the former president of Mexico, Peña Nieto. Although the veracity of those details were disputed internationally, to many Mexicans, this was a fact of life. So that being said, I really wanted to understand what it was personally like for El Carnicero. While in prison, I've been rereading the Bible and learning how to ask God to forgive the unforgivable. What about the Rubedeck murders? Is it true that you were in a conflict with the Setas at that time? That's true. I killed many people in that conflict but none of them were the Rubedeck murders. What about Ana Nunez? <laughs> Fuck, I'd be lying to you if I told you she wasn't on our list, but I didn't fucking do it. We didn't need her to win the plaza. Are you aware the killer left a blood sample at the Ana Nunez crime scene? Mira, they took my blood when I first came here, right? Right. Why don't you test it? When you get the results back, call me. Thanks, Omar. Those were all the words we needed to hear. Uh, I still didn't trust him, though if he was guilty, running a DNA test would only incriminate him further. So what did we have to lose? That said, getting this ordered is not a very simple process. The first thing we tried was contacting Garnicero's defense attorney. Even though he admitted on tape to go ahead and test him, the case was closed. His defense has nothing to gain, so our requests got stonewalled. The second was petitioning the sheriff's office. Though, as you heard earlier, Sheriff Gardner wasn't going to be much help. So we contacted someone with some experience in the matter to look into this further. Uh, hello, my name is James Renner. I'm a, uh, an investigative journalist, and I specialize in hunting down serial killers. James was actually in a similar situation while working on the Tina Harmon case. Tina Harmon was a young uh, girl. She was 10 years old, 11 years old, and she was abducted and, and murdered. And it was always assumed that the guy that did it was this man named Bob Buell, who was executed by the state of Ohio in 2002. And uh, I investigated it and came to believe that another man might have been involved in this. Bob Buell was executed for the murder of a girl named Krista Harrison. But they all assumed that he was also responsible for Tina Harmon. So when he was executed, they just stopped doing anything with the Tina Harmon case. And then they neglected to contact the family. That sounds eerily familiar. I know. So I got involved with the family and uh, 
we said, hey, you know, let's test the clothing that she was wearing that day. And the prosecutor was like, oh man, you know, we'd love to test it, but it's it's way too expensive. We told that to the newspapers and embarrassed the, the prosecutor out in Wayne County. He uh, then decided, okay, we'll, we'll test it. And they found DNA and it ended up being a match to Bob Buell. It was not exactly what I expected, but it closed the case. So we took a page out of James's playbook and contacted the 34th Texas Judicial District Attorney, Jorge Espada. Everyone we asked about it told us we were crazy, that there was just no way it was worth anyone's time. If L.A. County wouldn't even run George Hodel's DNA profile against the Black Dahlia murders, then how would we ever stand a chance with a comparatively obscure case? What those same people forgot were that DAs are elected officials. Even though the 24th district includes El Paso, Cloberson, and Hudspeth counties, DA Espada retained his office by less than 400 votes in his last election. So when we wrote him, I shared my story, what Garnicero said to us, and made sure to politely remind him of the reach of true crime podcasts. In fact, far more of his constituents listened to Monster or Up and Vanished than even voted in the DA election. Within a week of writing that email, this happened. Hi, is this Magdalena Sala? Yes. I'm Claire. I'm with the district attorney's office for Texas's 34th district. Would you be available Thursday at 10 a.m. to meet at our office in El Paso? Yeah, I can make that work. Terrific. The address is 500 East San Antonio, Suite 203, El Paso, Texas, 79901. Gotcha. See you then. We are just parked outside the El Paso County Courthouse where DA Espada's office is. I'm nervous. What if this is it? What if he turns us away and we'll never find out who did this? Mama, don't worry, okay? I mean, the fact that he called us here has to be at least a little encouraging. Yeah, you're right. Let's put the recorder in the bag before we go in. I... I think this is suite 203. Okay. Uh, Monica Rodriguez. Lena, great to meet you. It's so nice to meet you. This is Monica. Hello, Monica. Hi. Well, take a seat. Can I get anything? Any waters? No, no, we're all set. I, I know you're incredibly busy, so let's just get right down to it. Can you help us? <laughs> of course. I know a lot of uh, bureaucrats don't want to reopen this case because, as far as they are concerned, it's been resolved. Yeah, we've definitely experienced that. Sorry. Well, I don't serve them. I serve you, the constituents. If Carnicero is a murderer, all it takes is one simple DNA test to confirm that. The people of Sierra Blanca, our community, and the family members of the victims, including you, Magdalena, deserve closure. Thank you. My office will do whatever it takes to support you on this. I can't tell you how much this means to us. No need. We have a discretionary budget for tests. We'll run Carnicero's DNA against our sample and get back to you when we get results. He said that it'd take roughly three weeks. In the back of my mind, I'd let it go. I kind of lost all hope, figured that maybe this hunch was all in my head. That maybe that line, you will finally serve a purpose, was just a part of the Sinaloa ideology the one El Carnicero subscribed to, that there was a greater purpose to all of their actions. 
though that notion was no more comforting. Is there really ever any resolution for the murder of a loved one? Hello? Can you hold for D.A. Espada? Yes. One moment. Magdalena. Hello, yes, Mr. Espada? I have uh, some unfortunate news. Mr. Santiago is not a match with the blood left at the crime scene. We are reopening the case. Wow. We wish you all the best, but uh, unfortunately I can't speak on the record about active investigations. Thank you, Mr. Espada. I didn't know what to think. In a certain sense, this is what I suspected the whole time. There's something haunting about learning that all of your deepest suspicions are true. That is when I knew I'd never stop. Not until I got to the bottom of all of this. That being said, we want to remain available, but still protect ourselves in the process since the killer is probably out there. Nothing illustrates this better than this story that James Renner shared with us. Um, my wife has always been a little concerned about what I do. And I've always been able to, you know, keep her calm because I'm like, look, that sort of stuff where the killers taunt the journalist or come after the journalist or kill the reporter, that that's just that's just in the movies. It never happens in real life. And then I get involved with this uh, this Moore Murray case. On the eighth anniversary of Mora's disappearance. A video was posted on YouTube, and it was posted by a guy who called himself Dirtbag112. And that's important because the highway that Moore disappeared on was Route 112. And her father, Fred, has always been on the media saying that some local dirtbag took her. It's just this guy sitting in a creepy basement with concrete walls, like a murder basement. And he's laughing at the, the screen. <laughs> and it goes on for like a minute and a half. And then he abruptly stops. And then he winks at the camera and it fades into happy anniversary. So, you know, I'm thinking, oh, this is this Morris killer taunting us on the anniversary of her disappearance? So I put this video up on my blog and I said, hey, let's find this guy. He did not like that. So a day later, I'm sitting at home and he posts a new video on YouTube and, uh, and I pull it up and it's pictures of my son. And my son, as Casey at the time was five years old, I think. And uh, at first I saw these pictures and I thought, oh my God, you know, these pictures were taken outside my house. And it was just pictures of my kids, sets of creepy music. And so I got in touch with the prosecutor the next day. I'm like, you gotta arrest this guy, what are you doing? And they're like, look, we can't. You know, technically he didn't do anything illegal. It's, you know, First Amendment. That is absolutely horrifying. And we have to be very careful to protect our safety while doing this podcast. So we decided to delete all of our personal social media while the case is ongoing. We will have social media for the podcast at Heads of Sierra Blanca on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Our website is www.headsofsierrablanca.com. More importantly, if you have any information you think is relevant, we want to hear from you. We created a voicemail number for anyone to chime in, reach us, or submit tips. 
Our number is 915-213-4292. That's 915-213-4292. We'll see you on the next episode of The Heads of Sierra Blanca. Hope you enjoyed the first episode of The Heads of Sierra Blanca. Episode two is available now. So go to your podcast app, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast app you use, and please subscribe. Thank you for listening and supporting everything we do.